Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 24th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. More classified documents are discovered at Biden's home. A California shooting leaves 10 dead. The UK Prime Minister faces pressure to sack Nadim Zahawi. Poland says it will formally ask for permission to re-export German tanks. Economists say India is likely to borrow a record $198 billion this fiscal year. Japan's prime minister says the country must act on its population decline. Biden's chief of staff announces plans to step down. Chris Hipkins is selected as New Zealand's next prime minister. Spotify announces plans to lay off 6% of its workforce. Rolling blackouts leave 220 million in Pakistan without power. And a watchdog warns that France remains very sexist. Our top story, more classified documents are discovered at Biden's home. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Axios, Reuters, CNBC, and the New York Times. President Biden's personal lawyer, Bob Bauer, revealed on Saturday that six additional classified documents were found at the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware, during a search conducted by the Department of Justice. DOJ agents on Friday had full access to the president's home, including personally handwritten notes, files, papers, binders, memorabilia, to-do lists, schedules, and reminders going back decades. The DOJ found documents with classification markings and surrounding materials from Biden's time as a senator and some from his tenure as vice president. Previously, other classified documents were discovered at Biden's Wilmington home and in a private office at a Washington, D.C. think tank. Bauer did not disclose where in the Wilmington home the new documents were found. After the second batch of documents was discovered, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate Biden's holding of government records after he was vice president. The searches for documents in Biden's possession have happened over the months since the DOJ attempted to resolve a dispute with former President Trump over possession of classified documents, many of which were recovered during a DOJ search of his Mar-a-Lago residence last summer. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts. And during this podcast, we always separate the spin from the facts. And the first spin for this story is a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. The only similarity between Biden's and Trump's situations is that both cases involve classified documents. Otherwise, the scenarios are totally different. As Biden has voluntarily informed the DOJ about the discovery of the documents and has been cooperative with the authorities every step of the way. Trump, however, forced the DOJ to get a warrant and conduct a surprise search. We still don't know if all his documents have been returned. And a Republican narrative comes from Town Hall. Every discovery of documents in Biden's possession adds to his long list of offenses. If the most recent documents date back to his time in the Senate, then we know he's been illegally holding them for more than a decade. The White House keeps saying it's taking this case seriously, but the president has voiced no regrets over the matter and his spokespeople have been stonewalling questions about the investigation. And this story has generated a cynical narrative, and it's coming from CNN. That two presidents have been called out for possessing documents they shouldn't have had should shed light on the issue of overclassification, which has increased exorbitantly over the past decade, creating an administrative nightmare. There must be reforms to the flawed classification system. 
you know, it's too bad that Biden's not a 90s kid because a bunch of single documents being found doesn't sound as bad as one trapper keeper full of documents found. (laughs) (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Tragic news coming from California as a mass shooting leaves 10 dead and dozens injured. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Insider, LA Times, Guardian, ABC, Fox News, and Forbes. The Los Angeles, California Sheriff's Department on Sunday identified Hu Cantran as the suspected gunman in Saturday's Monterey Park shooting. He allegedly killed 10 people celebrating the Lunar New Year at a ballroom dance studio. The mass shooting, which occurred in the evening on Lunar New Year's Eve, also injured at least 10 others whom authorities say are being treated in local hospitals. Their conditions reportedly range from stable to critical. Law enforcement originally described the suspect as being in his 30s to 50s, though police now say the perpetrator was 72-year-old Tran, who was found dead Sunday morning by an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. A team comprising of the County Homicide Bureau, Monterey Park Police, the FBI, and the California Office of Emergency Services is investigating the shooting which took place on West Garvey Avenue, a hub of Asian-American supermarkets and restaurants. Police are investigating whether the shooting, which took the lives of five males and five females, was connected to another shooting that took place 20 minutes later at the Lilai Ballroom in the nearby city of Alhambra. No injuries were reported in that scene, and the suspect fled after patrons took away the weapon. The shooting in Monterey Park comes less than a week after two gunmen killed six people including a 10-month-old baby in Central California. According to the Gun Violence Archive, more than 44,000 Americans died from gun violence in 2022. All right, Eric, thanks for those tragic facts. We have a left narrative spin from ABC News. This shooting was yet another senseless act of gun violence that tragically disrupted a cultural celebration in America. No matter who the victims or the perpetrators are, these constant tragedies need to come to an end so Americans of all backgrounds can feel safe in their communities. PJ Media gives us a right narrative for this story. The classic anti-white and anti-gun talking points were on full display when the news of this shooting first broke. The only problem is that the suspect is an Asian man and the weapon he reportedly used was a pistol. This story will probably fade from the headlines in the coming days as the mainstream media realizes it can no longer use it to moralize about assault rifles or white supremacy. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives. This one says there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.38 small firearms per capita in the U.S. by the year 2029. Sunak under pressure to sack Zahawi over taxes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Politico, The Independent, Sky News, and The Evening Standard. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has asked his independent ethics advisor to look into the tax affairs of Nadheem Zahawi, amid pressure for Sunak to remove Zahawi from his role as Conservative and Unionist Party chair. Calls for Zahawi's resignation started after The Guardian reported he paid a penalty to His Majesty's Revenue and Customs for unpaid taxes while serving as Chancellor of the Exchequer, the UK's top finance minister. When asked whether Zahawi should stand down during the investigation, Sunak said that the party chairman would continue in his role, as is long-standing practice. 
The prime minister admitted that there were clearly questions that need answering and that the independent investigation would advise him on Zahawi's compliance with the ministerial code. On Saturday, Zahawi admitted that he paid what His Majesty's Revenue and Customs said was due after a disagreement over shares the party chairman owned in the polling company YouGov. Zahawi, who co-founded YouGov, did not disclose the sum of the settlement, although it has been estimated at £4.8 million, including a 30% penalty. Zahawi has claimed that the error was careless and not deliberate. Despite this, Shadow Business Secretary and Labour Party member Jonathan Reynolds claimed that Zahawi's position was completely untenable. The Spectator gives us a right narrative for this story. Despite pressure for his resignation, the Conservative Party and allies of Zahawi are adamant for the chairman to stay on. While not a long-term supporter of Sunak, the Prime Minister has chosen to keep Zahawi close to him in government as part of an attempt to appease party factions. To lose the chairman now would be a painful blow to Sunak's party unity. And we have a left narrative from the Daily Mirror. To admit that a mistake was careless rather than intentional is not good enough when you are the governing party of the UK, and yet it has become a mainstay in a multitude of errors by Tory cabinet ministers. The Conservatives continue to tax the people while avoiding paying their taxes themselves. Careless individuals should not be given control of the country. The reason the government has been consistently careless is that these politicians only care about themselves. And a nerd narrative says that there is a 77% chance that Rishi Sunak will remain the Prime Minister of the UK on January 1st, 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. It is interesting to, uh, no, that's not my fault. I just messed up. You know, I just, I'm the person in charge of the money for this country as well, by the way. So don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. The tragedy in Ukraine continues as we look at day 334 as Poland is to ask Germany for permission to re-export leopard tanks to Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, Pravda, and The Guardian. Poland will formally ask Germany for permission to re-export its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, Polish Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki said on Monday. After days of mounting pressure on Germany over transfers of the vehicles, Morawiecki added that Poland is building a coalition of countries that are prepared to send their Leopard tanks to Ukraine and said a decision may be made to re-export them even if Germany declines to grant permission. Morawiecki said, quote, We will ask Germany for permission, but this is a secondary theme. Even if, eventually, we do not get this permission, he continued, we will hand over our tanks, together with the others, to Ukraine. Nonetheless, Morawiecki's remarks came after Germany's Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock stated on Sunday that, quote, If we were asked by Poland for approval to send the tanks, we would not stand in the way. Elsewhere on Sunday, in his nightly address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pledged to crack down on corruption in his country after Vasyl Lozaniski, the Deputy Minister for Community Development, was arrested over the weekend for allegedly receiving $400,000 in bribes during the purchase of generators. Zelensky also said he will shortly announce a series of, quote, powerful necessary steps in response to the revelations of alleged bribery. Let me be clear, he said, this is not going back to how it was before, whether you are close to state institutions or have spent your life chasing a chair. Meanwhile, on the ground, Ukrainian officials reported that one civilian was killed and one was injured in the Kharkiv region. Four civilians were reportedly injured in Donetsk and one in Zaporizhia, while a further three were injured in Kherson. Pro-Russia officials said one civilian was killed in Ukrainian attacks on Luhansk for the same time period. 
Thanks for that rundown of the facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. Germany, which has a unique historical responsibility to uphold the sovereignty and freedom of Ukraine, must consent to the use of Leopard 2 tanks by Kyiv. Ukrainians were some of the greatest victims of Hitler and Stalin, and Berlin now has the opportunity to intercede on Putin's war of terror against an innocent people. The whole of the West will judge the courage of Germany on whether it allows tanks to be sent to Kyiv. And TASS gives us a pro-Russian narrative. Countries that are sending more and more advanced weaponry to Ukraine, be they Germany or another nation, are becoming increasingly intertwined in this conflict which aims to bring the strategic collapse of Russia. Ultimately, it's the Ukrainian people who will pay the highest price for the miscalculation by Western nations. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 30% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before the year 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. A new poll claims India is likely to borrow a record $198 billion in fiscal year 2023-24. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Hindu Business Line, The Economic Times, CNBC TV 18, and The Print. Economists polled by Reuters predict that the Indian government will borrow a record 16 trillion rupees, or 198 billion American dollars, in the fiscal year 2023-24. Unanimously stating infrastructure spending and fiscal discipline must be India's most significant budget priority. Though predictions range between 14.8 trillion rupees and 17.2 trillion rupees, the median forecast of 43 economists estimates 2023-24's gross borrowing would still be the highest on record. In fiscal year 22-23, the country borrowed an estimated 14.2 trillion rupees. This comes two weeks after India's chief economic advisor asserted that the country, whose GDP is currently $3.4 trillion, will become a $7 trillion economy by 2030. The Indian government's ability to cut borrowing in the near term is expected to be limited due to a fall in tax revenue and slow economic growth, while its debt has more than doubled what it was before the COVID pandemic. Last month, the International Monetary Fund said that India needed a more ambitious plan for fiscal consolidation to ensure debt, which is equal to 83% of annual GDP, to be sustainable in the medium term. This February 1st budget will be the last completely developed before national elections in 2024 and several state elections that will be key tests for the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Three spins emerging, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Economic Times. While the Indian economy may be slowing, it is growing above consensus estimates. Under Prime Minister Modi's leadership, India is set to be the second fastest growing economy in the G20 in fiscal year 2022-23. As global manufacturers are looking beyond China, India is stepping up to seize the moment and is getting closer to finally meeting its economic potential. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the wire. Even before COVID struck, India's financial sector was going through tough times. The current overview of the Indian economy is rather grim as bad debt and rising interest rates are expected to hinder India's economic recovery. There's an urgent need for course correction, or the worsening global crisis will soon bring more hardships for India's citizens. And a nerd narrative says that there is a 50% chance that India's GDP will be at least $12.8 trillion at the end of 2025, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Turning our attention to Japan, as Kishida says the nation is on the brink with a population decline. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Gulf Times, DW, and RTE. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has said the government will take action to address the nation's declining birth rate, which fell to a record low in 2021. It is now or never for Japan, said the political leader. The government has attempted to encourage people to have larger families in recent years, promoting incentives including cash bonuses and improved benefits. However, the promises did not stop births from dropping below 800,000 last year for the first time. The notable moment came eight years sooner than the government had expected. Kishida said on Monday that Japan was, quote, on the brink of compromising its social function and vowed to create a children-first economy and society. The prime minister pledged macroeconomic reform, such as dealing with inflation and revising a seniority-based wage system in the aim of increasing overall salaries. Birth rates in Japan have faced continuous decline for 14 years, and now the country has the second-highest median age on the globe at 49. Only the tiny nation of Monaco exceeds that median at 55. The current population of 125 million in Japan is predicted to fall to 86.7 million by 2060. According to an analysis by UWA Population Research, Japan is the third most expensive nation to raise a child globally. Only China and South Korea are more expensive locations. Both countries are also struggling with shrinking populations. Some experts argue that the maintenance of strict immigration policies that have limited the number of people to settle in Japan and resulted in a largely homogenous society needs to be relaxed in order to offset the rapid aging of Japan's population. The Ahasi Shinbun brings us Narrative A. This population decline is the result of successive governmental failings to act swiftly or decisively on the issue of Japan's aging demographics. Despite vague promises to address slow growth and low pay in recent months, Kishida has failed to intervene with private employers to raise wages or commit government funding to make having children more affordable. The prime minister has continually dodged public debate over who will fund these necessary initiatives to protect his electoral chances. Narrative B coming from BBC News. Japan's declining birth rate is not only a political issue. The declining population is inextricably linked to the nation's hostility to immigration. Only about 3% of its population is foreign-born, and until Japan adapts to be more accepting of a homogenous immigration-based society that challenges the rigid hierarchy at the center of its culture, it will continue to face economic and social decline. This demographic crunch can't be blamed on the prime minister alone. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 57% chance that any country will have a total fertility rate below 0.5 before 2053, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Zions to replace Klain as Biden's chief of staff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, NBC, Breitbart, PJ Media, and Fox News. After two years of serving in President Biden's administration, Ron Klain is expected to step down as White House chief of staff in the coming weeks. Klain lasted longer than any other Democratic president's first chief of staff in more than 50 years. Klain, whose departure comes as Biden faces an investigation over the handling of classified documents from before his presidency, will be replaced by former Biden COVID lead Jeff Zients, who briefly left the administration in April before returning ahead of the midterms. Though no specific date has been set, Klain is expected to leave the White House after Biden's State of the Union address February 7th a move he's reportedly been telling colleagues in private about since the November midterm elections. Having worked for Biden off and on for more than 30 years, 
McLean is seen by admirers as uniquely capable of advocating on behalf of the president, which showed during the process of passing the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan, the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure program, and other economic policies. Klain's tenure was also marked by some controversial social media posts. He retweeted an op-ed in 2021 insisting that the year wasn't all bad. He also retweeted a poll showing Biden's approval underwater and one that impacted the president's vaccine mandate. Zients also has a history with Biden, having worked for the then-senator from Delaware in the 1980s and during Biden's 1988 and 2008 presidential campaigns. He also worked as acting and deputy director of the Office of the Management and Budget under former President Obama. Thank you, Scott. Red State gives us a Republican narrative. The administration has been chock full of chaos and controversy since the beginning and the departure of Klain, who's probably taking the opportunity to distance himself from the worsening classified document situation, won't change much. Zients will likely be the same conduit between aging Biden and the Democratic Party's demands. And the Democratic narrative comes from NBC News. For the most part, Biden has enjoyed staff consistency, keeping Klain and his entire cabinet until now, marking him and Obama as the only president since Ronald Reagan to keep a full cabinet through the midpoint of their term. Historically, it's normal to make a change of chief of staff at this point in a presidency. Unlike the Trump administration, the Biden White House has been successful policy-wise and stable personnel-wise. Metaculous is giving us a nerd narrative for this story as well saying that there's a 64% chance that Biden will officially declare his campaign for re-election by November 15th, 2023. Well, why do they call it a cabinet? What, what, what's going on there? <laughs> Let's look up the definition. I'll tell you what I don't like, Eric, is the those kitchen cabinets that have glass on them. If I put something in the cabinet, you don't need to see it. No full disclosure cabinets for me either. No, if I'm putting something away, it's supposed to be hidden. I'm not that Abs- proud of my dishes. Uh, absolutely. In New Zealand, the Labour Party selects Chris Hipkins as Prime Minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, ABC News, and the Taxpayers' Union. On Sunday, New Zealand's ruling Labour Party approved Chris Hipkins to replace Jacinda Ardern as its leader, making him the 41st Prime Minister in the country's history. Hipkins, who emerged as the only candidate to lead the Labour Party, swiftly appointed Carmel Cepoloni as the nation's first Deputy Prime Minister. Ardern will formally tender her resignation to the Governor-General before Hipkins is sworn in on Wednesday. This comes after Ardern unexpectedly declared on Thursday that she would step down from her position, citing burnout and lack of energy for re-election after her six challenging years in office. First elected to Parliament in 2008, 44-year-old Hipkins was appointed the Health Minister in July 2020 and later became the COVID Response Minister. His elevation comes amid a forecast of deep economic recession marked by high inflation and a cost-of-living crisis. An opinion poll released Friday indicates Ardern's resignation is likely to improve Labour's chances of re-election, even though the ruling party's popularity has fallen to 32%, behind the National Party at 37%. A general election will be held on October 14th. Those were the facts, and we have a couple of spins, beginning with the right narrative coming from BBC News. Labor is bleeding public support as dissatisfaction with high inflation and prolonged COVID controls batter New Zealand's tourism industry. Though he's seen as the safest choice for the party, Chris Hipkins faces an uphill task to convince the country that he can turn the economy around. Strict lockdowns and extended border closures knocked the economy and Ardern out, and the forecast isn't looking any different for Hipkins. And we have a left narrative from the New Zealand Herald. 
Ardern's sudden resignation left the Labour Party without a successor and in far worse shape to fight the October 14th election. Nonetheless, Hipkins is a household name who can step out of Ardern's shadow and take New Zealand to new heights. A career politician, Hipkins has the political antenna to reconnect the government with local voters, drop unpopular policies, and ensure New Zealand's politics reach global prominence. In our next story, Spotify is laying off 6% of its workforce. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and USA Today. Music streaming platform Spotify announced Monday that the company will be laying off 6% of its global workforce, which is about 600 employees. Spotify has a total workforce of around 9,800 people, employing 5,400 people in the U.S. and 1,900 people in Sweden. Daniel Ek, Spotify's CEO, said last year that the company would slow hiring but did not plan layoffs. Ek said Monday, quote, over the last few months, we've made a considerable effort to rein in costs, but it simply hasn't been enough. The layoffs were announced in a filing with reports saying the job cuts will impact all departments across the company's workforce. Spotify also announced Don Ostroff, chief content officer, was leaving the company. Spotify's stock jumped more than 2% in early trading Monday after the announcement. These layoffs come as more than 200,000 tech industry workers have been laid off since the start of 2022, with layoffs recently announced at tech giants Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Meta, as well as other companies. Narrative A comes from The Verge. For far too long, Spotify focused on unsustainable growth rather than turning a profit. Investors pressured the platform to focus on ad sales and revenue, but its management refused. Now this poor business decision is coming back to haunt the company and forcing it to restructure after promising not to let people go. CNN is giving us a narrative B for this story. Spotify isn't alone in feeling the pain of a dip in consumer spending because of inflation and funding drying up because of higher interest rates. In the larger picture, Spotify and other tech companies are laying off a small percentage of their staff. This mini-reset will help them thrive moving forward. This podcast is available on Spotify, is it not? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. Be sure to rate and subscribe, folks. Thank R- you so right. much. Rolling blackouts in Pakistan leave 220 million without power. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Independent, Times of India, and Bloomberg. On Monday, Pakistan suffered a nationwide power outage that left almost 220 million people without electricity including the capital city of Islamabad and Peshawar, which have since had a limited number of grids restored. Kuram Dastgir, Pakistan's energy minister, said a large power surge occurred in the grid's southern area, causing a rolling blackout across the country's network. The outage that began on Monday morning was in the process of being resolved. Dostger told a local TV channel that Pakistan's grid temporarily switches off power generation units to save fuel costs during the winter. However, a surge occurred between Jamshoro and Dadu when the grid was restarted, reportedly resulting in a rolling blackout. Dostger denied that a widespread blackout was a major crisis despite hospitals, schools, and other critical facilities remaining without power for over six hours. Pakistan's complex power network has failed multiple times in recent years. In 2021, a fault in a power facility shuttered the entire network, forcing residents to demand a new grid to replace the antiquated transmission system. Following the energy crisis that began last year, Pakistan's government has sought methods for reducing the use of costly, imported, liquefied natural gas 
including closing markets, malls, and government offices early each day. Those were the facts, and we have two spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with Narrative A coming from Reuters. Pakistan's government understands that the nation is in the turbulent midst of an energy crisis. The government has stepped up its measures to conserve energy and reduce costs. Not only has the government cut back on days in the work week, but they have also devised a complex and comprehensive energy conservation plan. Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif has increased the country's efforts to conserve energy by 40% to make up for the previous administration's shortcomings. And Narrative B comes from Forbes. Pakistan faces several crises surging from all sides. A financial crunch is colliding with both an energy crisis and the severe impacts of climate change. Rolling blackouts and repeated flood inundations are just the beginning. Pakistan and its government have become the poster child for what government should avoid in their preparations for climate resiliency. Until significant investments are made in resilient infrastructure, Pakistan's power grid will continue to be vulnerable to the onslaught of heat waves, flooding, and cascading blackouts, whether related or not. Do you have like a generator on your house or anything like that? What do you I, What do you do in uh, in that this case? You know, I don't have a generator. I start running for a hotel. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, how far do I have to get away from my house to right. uh, to have for the hotel have power? Yeah, right. In our final story, turning our attention to France, as a watchdog warns, the society remains very sexist. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Associated Press, NDTV, The Local, and ABC. The government-created High Council for Equity Between Women and Men, or HCE, released its annual report on Monday in which it claimed that French society remains very sexist in all of its spheres. The Equality Watchdog called for a national, quote, emergency plan in response to the alleged massive, violent, and sometimes lethal consequences of sexism against women. According to its report, over 10% of women reported that they experienced sexual violence. The HCE surveyed 2,500 people in France and found that more people are aware of gender inequality due to the Me Too movement. But the report added that bias and gender stereotypes, sexist cliches, and everyday sexism are still commonplace. 20% of males between the ages of 25 and 34 said bragging about sexual exploits was necessary to, quote, be respected as a man in society. 25% of men say sexual violence gets, quote, too much attention, while 14% of women said they had a sexual act forced on them. HCE's president, Sylvie Pierre Brassolet, sounded the alarm about sexism among younger men, which she attributes to culture from social media and pornography. She adds that sexism must be fought as early as possible. The HCE will present its findings to French President Macron on Wednesday. The council proposed a 10-point plan to counter sexism, including regulation. Macron's administration has taken a progressive approach to women's issues, offering free birth control to women up to 25 years old and attempting to constitutionally guarantee abortion rights. All right, our final round of narrative spins begins with an establishment critical spin from The Guardian. Sexism has stained France for generations, and it's only getting worse. Women continue to be mistreated and abused, while men's attitudes toward women become colder and more vitriolic. The so-called macho response to feminist movements has brought even more violence and harm to women, and France must act quickly and decisively to combat sexism. A pro-establishment narrative is coming from Indian Express. While France's society has been patriarchal in the past and women's rights have not been where they need to be, French officials are working to promote equality amongst the genders. 
Social norms that have been reinforced for decades and centuries cannot be undone within a few years. But France is working to make the country more equitable for everyone. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.